maybe it gives the bard the chance to do some of his sneaking about. His jacking. I'm not going to say jacking of all trades. I just said it. <laughs> we have our gold open. <laughs> inner city hellscape of new york city i'm your host shane and i'm your host ishan and welcome to episode 67 of total party thrill a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours in this episode we're going it alone and talking about how to split the party but first the party learns the truth about the silver flame in the morning glory campaign and later the beguiler lies like it's his job because it is in the character creation forge so speaking of splitting the party uh we just had our election (laughs) results just came in yeah, so let's see what happens to the GOP now. You know, I feel like this is... They've basically been cleaved in two. It's like German reunification. <laughs> uh, heading in the same direction? Uh, who knows? Uh, okay, let's keep an eye out in like 12 years. Oh, uh, yeah. So anyway, our national nightmare is over. We have a new president. Well, we have a new president-elect. Okay, yeah, fair enough. My favorite was, you remember in 2000, I don't know, maybe you were like seven years old. uh, In 2000, uh, when Gore and Bush were still like... Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) When they were still fighting over the recount, uh, I think it might have been Leno went around and was asking people, who's the president? And people were like, we don't know. We have no idea. And I was like, well, no, it's 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 Bill Clinton. Clinton. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was all settled in like a month. It seemed like forever. Oh, well. So to try and tie this into gaming... What what can we take away from this election scenario and turn this into a campaign, or or at least like a an arc of a campaign? I think there's plenty of opportunity here for the backdrop for a campaign where the players uh, and the PCs need to make a decision about like where their loyalties lie and how far they're willing to go to keep the perfect from being the enemy of the good. Like in this real life scenario, there was an obvious evil. <laughs> right. Well, obvious crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, as soon as he started getting really racist, then I was like, okay, not only crazy, also evil. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then reasonable people could disagree about the other side. And I feel like that's a situation or a scenario that can play really well in a campaign when you've got four to six people around a table. You know, you have people being like, okay, we need to unite to fight this greater evil. However, do we side with the corrupt politicians yeah, the, the, or, do, or do we side with like the rebels who are, let's face it, going to get crushed? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I could definitely see that sort of uh, black company, gray on gray morality, where you, you have that lawful politician who is sort of crushing the nobility, but improving life for the, the peasants, but is restricting freedom. Or you have the very like kind of old guard nobility who are trying to restore their own power right in the name of freedom yeah i think there are a lot of opportunities for getting into strange political conversations when you introduce like feudal factions right yeah it's it's like they're both kind of oppressive regimes it's just sort of deciding which one you want to oppress more or less which groups do you want to target and in a weird way uh playing like a a role-playing game in this instance can actually be lighter or less gritty than the real world even though you're hacking people apart with swords because if six 
highly powered PCs join a rebel faction, there's a distinct possibility that the coup could succeed and that they could institute an entirely new form of government. Right, yeah. I also like the idea of just turning <laughs> turning the two groups of this election into different monsters that are competing for control of a city. <laughs> They're all secret vampires or secret werewolves? Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, Hillary is definitely a secret vampire. That's the answer. <laughs> and uh, which, you know... It, She'll bring about a lot of change that will benefit a lot of people, except for those people that have to be sucked dry to feed her ever-growing bloodlust. Meanwhile, Trump is the uh, mind flayer who is slowly corrupting everybody and making everyone insane. Mind flayers have intelligence 18. He can't be a mind flayer. I don't know. You don't think he's smart? Oh, God, no. I don't know, man. I saw him at the uh, the Al Smith dinner, the charity mm-hmm. dinner, when they kind of roasted each other. And he's like completely self-aware with some he of that He has stuff. writers. Yeah, he doesn't seem to use them. <laughs> Outside of that dinner, then. The first half of that dinner. He didn't use it for Melania's speech, anyway. <laughs> that was one of the jokes he made. I thought that was really yeah. funny. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he has a tough time being self-deprecating about himself, but he throws his wife under the bus. No big deal. Well, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> probably part of his general problem as a candidate. Easier to grab them when they're under the wheels of a bus. Oh, Lord. Okay. Anyway, that's all over. So let's talk about happy things. <laughs> Like how uh, in the Morning Glory campaign, our party is stuck in Athos, the world of Dark Sun, which is now ruled by the Sorcerer King Belshalor. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, who is, of course, the shadow in the flame from Eberron, uh, because this is an Eberron campaign. That's right. We have uh, we have been fighting Belshalor, the uh, fiendish overlord, the shadow in the flame. We have <laughs> pursued him into his own pocket dimension. His Smart. Own, his own little realm. <laughs> Let's fight him on his own turf. Yeah. Well, we can't get him. If we if he gets to our turf, we're in bigger trouble. So <laughs> we're gonna fight him over there before we have to fight him over here. Exactly. <laughs> I never back that war. <laughs> uh, anyway, everything is terrible in uh, in Athos, but we have stumbled upon one beacon of hope in the form of uh, of a certain paladin, Tiramiron, the. Paladin who actually founded the Church of the Silver Flame about 700 years ago. Now, the party has pursued Belshalor and his undead minion, Arandis Vol, the Lich Queen, into, like, actually inside the Silver Flame. And it's not what they expected. It's this dry desert with this, like, bloated, dying sun in the sky. The atmosphere is is orange and there's like sandstorms all over the place and then they're they're in the city basically made of hovels except that there's a large golden tower and also a multicolored ziggurat and they meet tira and she basically has to give them the lowdown mechanically speaking there was limited magic item usage Uh, this was leading right up to the final battle so i basically told everybody hey pick three of your magic items those are the only ones that work because this is Dark Sun, and like magic items aren't nearly as common as on Eberron, so you really can't be festooned like a Christmas tree. Yeah, it's just going to be uh, your three attuned items. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> no divine spells, which hurt Brand a little bit, because you did have a bit of cleric. Uh, yeah, it, it really hurt in the uh, healing department for the group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It hurt Kallig a bit, because he couldn't cast his spells, but he could use them to fuel smites. So he was like, eh, I'm, I'm just going to do what I always do. And probably the most difficult thing for the party to deal with was that anytime they cast an arcane spell, it would automatically defile in that it would cause necrotic damage to all creatures in the immediate vicinity. Did that include cantrips? Yes, it did. 
it was like the lowest level. I think the same as like a first level spell. Awesome. <laughs> so this is a three-year Eberron campaign. Why Why did I stick everybody in Dark Sun? I think maybe it's a question that some people are asking. But like, keep in mind, this was 18 months ago, and like a 5e conversion for Dark Sun was not on any of our radars at that point. And I have always liked imagining how all the different D&D or even like outside D&D settings could possibly fit together, but mainly because like my favorite setting is Planescape and like all of them do fit together. Right. Yeah. Had you, Shane, had you had experience with Dark Sun before this? I, I mean, I knew what Dark Sun was, but no, I'd never played in a Dark Sun game. So it was all a little new to me. All right. So Tira Miran <laughs> explains, well, all of your gear is now made of chitin and bone and obsidian right because there's no metal here and everything's awful and then goes on to tell them how the 700 year history of the church of the silver flame is actually all a lie because bell shaler wanted to be trapped so that he could infiltrate the kalakshash that's the energy field created by the sacrifice of the coatles hundreds of thousands of years ago that continually binds all of the fiendish overlords inside kyber he's a sleeper agent and he's been slowly amassing his power for centuries. So the Church of the Silver Flame teaches that if you revere the flame and you die, your soul doesn't then pass on to Dolor to slowly fade away like everyone else believes. Instead, it goes to join in the power of the flame, and then it strengthens the, the bond that holds the overlord. It uh, That's half true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your soul definitely goes to the flame. Uh, unfortunately, it just gets tortured here. <laughs> yep. Until uh, you eventually break and join Belshalor as a Templar. Or those Templars hunt you down and then take the energy of your soul and store it in the ziggurat for some purpose in the future. Right. Maybe, I don't know, remaking the multiverse in his image. Yeah. yeah. That, that, I'm sure that's going to be a lovely place. <laughs> just just love what he's done with the place here. Right. You know, I just feel like I, I really want to set him loose on the whole multiverse. <laughs> right. Tira basically, like, you know, sweeps her hand across this this apocalypse and says... He started here. This is this this used to look like Eberron. You know, we were bound in this pocket dimension of his, and then he tore the ring of Sybaris out of the sky. He shunted the gods out, and then we didn't have any magic to fight back. So as new souls kept appearing here, they just have no way of actually opposing his rule. And this is what is in store for, well, not really Eberron, but, you know, the entire multiverse and whatever comes afterward if you fail. Speaking of that failure... <laughs> we would shortly be put to the test because about this time is when we get attacked by Templars. Yeah. Off in the distance, four pillars shoot out of the earth, each of them with a humanoid figure atop. One pillar is wreathed in flame, one in gusts of air, one is thick and rocky, and the other is coated in silt. And Tira says they're here to harvest the souls. Protect them as best you can. I will do what I can. And the Templars attack. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we're talking about that thing that you never do. Ever. Don't never. ever do it. Split the party. There's even a song called Never Split the Party by Emerald Rose. came out a few years ago. So why is there this admonition? Like It's been around for decades since the very earliest versions of the game. Well, it comes back from that old tradition of D&D where a dungeon crawl is a challenge to mm -hmm. the players. And simply put, if you divide and conquer, you lose your safety in numbers. 
if you split up, you just have fewer actions in a round, you have fewer resources available to you, and you're splitting them against the same level of threat because both rooms of the dungeon are presumably geared towards fighting the whole party. Right. It's not safe to go alone. Early versions of D&D were based around basically just trying to survive a series of things that are trying to kill you. It's the force multiplier effect of action economy, right? It's the same reason that the party can destroy one orc before it ever gets an action because they're taking, you know, five attacks in a round. Whereas the party is a, has a strong challenge when you just add a couple more orcs. And if you go from three to six, the difficulty gets significantly higher than it was at three, right? So it multiplies. Yeah, solo monsters are hard to balance and tend to die quickly because they can't do enough against an entire party. And the same thing is true of solo players. Yeah, exactly. You get one action per round. (laughs) (laughs) And even if you're only up against two goblins... That's one less action than they have. You just got flanked. Yeah. (laughs) Also, above the table, it is a group game. You know, so one when one person goes off on their own and leaves everyone else behind, what is everyone else supposed to do? You know, the DM can only run a game for one location at a time, really. Yeah, there's only one narrative going on. You know, it's like a movie. You can only see one scene at a time. Mm-hmm. So if one character or two characters are off doing something, that means the remainder of the group is waiting patiently to get the camera back on their characters yeah it works in a movie or in a book but can you imagine if there was a group playing through the lord of the rings and then you get to the two towers and for six months one group has to play frodo and sam and Gollum, and then the other group is just like well i you know i guess we'll see you in like june so that we can pick up with like aragorn legolas and gimli right well it's it's not even you say it works in a movie or a book but sometimes it even doesn't right that's the Uh, trick of pacing novels you know it's like if you're super into a story, I want to see what happens with those characters. I don't want to switch perspectives. I don't want to go talk about a subplot. Look, I want they'll, to... they'll be back in two more novels. <laughs> yeah, and that drives me nuts. <laughs> Hello, Wheel of Time. Right? <laughs> so that's the thing, right? Is it, It's challenging even traditional forms of fiction, not even when you're talking about a shared narrative like role-playing. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that there's a trope of the rogue player sneaking off to steal behind the party's back. It's because it happened a lot, and it derailed so many freaking games. Right. It's also, from a GM's perspective, difficult to run. You've got too many things to juggle, and it's really hard to you know balance out that time at the table. We've talked before about sharing the spotlight, and that's even difficult sometimes when every when all the players are together. Yeah, when you only have to move the spotlight slightly, right? <laughs> like just a little bit to the left. Uh, there's the bard. <laughs> <laughs> when you have to be like, meanwhile, right, on the other side of the world, exactly. <laughs> But there are some good reasons to split the party. And the fact that it's not the norm and it doesn't happen all the time can make it a really memorable experience, both for GMs and players. Yeah, especially because there is that trope of never splitting the party. Mm-hmm. When you do it, it automatically ramps up the tension. Yeah, someone is always going to say, really? We're, We're going to split the party? party? Oh, crap. <laughs> right? And and just that knowledge, just that metagame knowledge can really amp up the tension of the scenario. Yeah, watch someone who's sitting on their phone sit up and go, Oh, hold, wait, what? Yeah, we're splitting the party? Uh, You're not watching my bag anymore? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what are some reasons that as a GM you would want to take on the extra effort, both prep-wise and at the table, of splitting your party? For the exact reason that players want to avoid it, it amps up the danger. Mm -hmm. It can be hard to challenge six players at high and mid to high levels. So if you can break those into smaller groups, you can throw 
more reasonable encounters at mm-hmm. each of them and, and get the same level of tension or even a higher level of tension. Yeah, you don't always have to face an army. Right. <laughs> also, RPGs, for the most part, tend to reward characters who specialize. So if you can take a few of those important skill sets out of the mix for a little while, it can make the encounters much harder and then also sort of force your players to think outside the box. And you can also reward the secondary mm-hmm. player for each skill set, right? If you if you have a rogue and you have a bard, it gives the bard the chance to use his jack-of-all-trades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can give individual players time to shine without that maybe leader or person who sort of takes point, right? And that can often help bring a wallflower or a casual gamer into the action because now they are responsible for something they usually aren't responsible for. Yeah, old modules did this a lot where... Yeah, kind of arbitrarily. <laughs> yeah, well, it was usually like a trap that would spring and then couldn't be unsprung. Right. <laughs> so like the group was just, like half the group got hit by the trap, the other half didn't. Now you're in separate places in the dungeon. And uh, you want to see the party sweat in an old school dungeon crawl? Separate them from their healer. (laughs) (laughs) Or separate the healer from his meat shield. (laughs) Or or that, yeah. (laughs) But when the party is separate, they also do get to experience a different side of the game. You know, it's possible that in the subset of the group, the knowledge cleric could actually be the tankiest character. Yeah, he's got the armor, so now he's sitting in the front lines, right? You go stand there. Sorry, dude. Put down the book. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the wizard. I'm keeping the book. Exactly. (laughs) And if you've got that wallflower player or a casual gamer, this can be an opportunity for them to take a, a more central role in at least part of the narrative. Because, you know, rather than being one of six, they're probably one of three now. Yeah, you see this in fiction where the leader is incapacitated and then, you know, someone else needs to step up and sort of make decisions. And the same thing happens at a table. You usually have one or two or three people who are really invested in the direction that the story is going in or you know, are really on board with the GM and they're like, okay, I, I know how to sort of help move this story forward. But if you're someone who doesn't usually take that responsibility, having to be the one to do it can be a really enlightening experience. So another thing this can do is demonstrate how much the party is depending on a single character for something that can be kind of touch and go though certain groups could interpret that as a negative right? it might <laughs> it might highlight how you know overpowered a certain character is or, or something like that which might not be well received at the table yeah it's also possible that that happens when you just have a player missing although i think some groups they just sort of assume that the player's abilities are there like if the healer the player of the healer can't make it to one session the healing is still available. You know, you just sort of like do it off screen. Yeah. But in this situation, like they're not there. Right. <laughs> oh, you're here. Yeah, you're just not there. <laughs> As a GM, it also really helps you customize the storyline for individual players because you can have PCs have experiences or interactions that other PCs in the group or maybe no other PC in the group knows about. Or they can have an interaction that doesn't even involve anyone else in the group, right? Like maybe they are conversing with their parent who's in jail. And like that's a storyline that happens for that individual player. But it doesn't affect the storyline as a whole or anyone else's storyline. So they're not forced to sit there through it. You can just deal with it with this one player and then handle it. Yeah, that's that's a great trick if you want to play away from the table. 
right? It's a good thing mm-hmm. to handle in between sessions. Um, it, it, you've got to be careful with the pacing if you want to do it at the table. Like, it's probably a bad idea to do one for each PC at back to back time, to yeah. back. <laughs> so it's like, cool, I played for one-sixth of that session because I did my section and then five other people went, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it, you know, pace that throughout the campaign. It's cool if you take 45 minutes every month to highlight one character. It's less cool to do that every session. Yeah, and there are some tricks to be able to make it happen at the table. I remember this one 4E game I was in, uh, run by Bo, who I believe is a listener. There was a battle where it sort of happened in this like semi-dreamscape, and everyone got thrown back into a flashback in one of their like previous lives. And combat still happened. You know, we were all still in the same room in the same battle, but we were all experiencing a different like version of that combat so like who we were fighting and and who our allies were looked different oh cool so like your character was fighting the orcish horde that killed your parents Mm -hmm. when they overran your village while another character was fighting the thieves guild thugs who extracted payment from his baker father for not paying his protection and another was like battling his arch nemesis dragonborn paladin yeah it was that's exactly what it was oh that's really cool and they were you're hitting the same bag of hit points together, but in your own separate kind of existence. Yeah, exactly. That's that's really neat. And we talked about this maybe a couple months ago. This is a real opportunity to increase dramatic irony at your table. Yeah, so remember, dramatic irony is when the players or the uh, audience knows something that the characters don't and can see the characters doing something bad (laughs) generally right like (laughs) the characters are walking into a trap the the audience knows it the character doesn't so if you've got two separate groups sitting at the same table the players know what's happening to the other group but their characters don't so it's very possible that you are putting players in a situation where they know well this is going to turn out really poorly because of what the other group just did but we don't know that right yeah I love like in a in a big dungeon right you're maybe in separate areas and one group has negotiated with like the king of the kobolds right and it's like oh great they're gonna help us like let's just find our friends and it's like oh no we're under attack in the eastern wing it's like oh you found my friends (laughs) this is awkward (laughs) too bad we killed all those kobolds right (laughs) or one group has already been through an area they know this is a trap the other group well the players know it's a trap but I mean you gotta keep out of character knowledge out of the game right what do you do uh, i open the door yeah i walk <laughs> i make my normal search check yep i fail <laughs> i walk into the trap <laughs> hit me with that 3d6 falling damage <laughs> so as a player why might you initiate a split the party scenario you don't i mean it's dumb don't do it ever <laughs> that's not true there's there's lots of reasons you do that <laughs> yeah it, and it always seems like a good idea at the time. <laughs> right, yeah there, yeah. there are reasons you might tell yourself. <laughs> I mean, lots of times there's just in-game time constraints. You know, you want to split up and search the castle. We got to find something quickly. We need to be out of here in an hour before the guards come. This thing has four floors. There's four of us. Everyone, take a floor and go. Yeah, we're not necessarily saving time at the table, but we're maybe saving narrative time. Right. There's a ticking time clock in the narrative, so we've got to get through it quicker. On the flip side of that, though, it doesn't necessarily need to take more time at the table. You could just say, okay, like we're going to split up into two and like it should just take half the time. Yeah. 
And it, it's possible that you just cover things more quickly, assuming that nobody finds anything, right? It's the difference between sort of a narrative challenge and uh, and like a dungeon crawl mm -hmm. kind of. If you're staying in narrative time, you can advance things very quickly. If you're getting into initiative order, then uh, you might not benefit that much. Yeah. Of course, getting that benefit of searching more quickly does come with the risk of splitting the party and not knowing that maybe one of you is going to stumble across the BBEG right. on floor two. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody hear that whistle? <laughs> I feel like that was a warning. Which is also great because then you have three other players continuing to make their search checks and then one player desperately scrambling to try to escape a room and then scream as loud as they can. Yeah. <laughs> now remind me how that disengage action works. <laughs> It also allows you to pursue like completely separate, simultaneous objectives. You know, lots of times a GM will present the party with a conundrum. You know, do you chase the bandits that are going west, or do you chase the ones going east? Because any one of them could alert their allies and then call for reinforcements. Yeah, or maybe you need to secure the wounded of your party, or do you pursue the attackers who wounded them why not both well it sounds like we're splitting the party <laughs> that's right there are good reasons not to okay <laughs> but sometimes you make that in-game decision you know you need to catch every single one of those bandits because any one of them is going to bring hell down on your heads yeah if any information leaks mm -hmm. the whole thing is ruined right yeah so everyone's going on a, a little search party too bad not everyone has the, the survival skill, skill. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Cool. So um, can we use perception, investigate, mm. nature, <laughs> acrobatics? <Right. laughs> I'm just going to get to a higher vantage point. <laughs> I investigate the landscape. Or sometimes, you know, one group will petition the queen for aid with the quest while the other one does research in the library. This is a nice way of actually saving time at the table. Yeah, that, and that's a, another cool way to get two specialties engaged at the same time, mm -hmm. right? If you have the sage characters, they can go do their research. That's what they want to do. Uh, whereas your face character isn't stuck in a dusty library, he's going to go handle the negotiations with the queen. Yeah. I think of spy movies or spy games, right? One group dresses in a tux and attends the state dinner and schmoozes with politicians. Oh, yeah, we've done that. <laughs> yeah. While other people with a different kind of skill set dresses up as waitstaff. <laughs> or some people start as guests and end up as waitstaff because they blow it so badly. <laughs> That's what we call a pivot. <laughs> yeah. This is a nice scenario because you've split the party, but they can still sometimes interact or come back together if necessary, right? Some people are in the kitchen. Other people are actually in the ballroom. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, I need to communicate a message? Great. I grab a tray of hors d'oeuvres. Yep. You know, I, I walk over to my party member. I whisper in their ear. Now they have that information. But we're not in constant communication because I need to keep moving. Yeah, that's also a cool way to use the the story structure to separate groups where they tend to you know all six of us do this one task until yeah. it's completed we all help each other like we make six checks you know yeah. like which <laughs> drives me nuts sometimes and we'll talk about that in a future episode <laughs> yeah but it's like all right cool so you're talking to the baron you're the only one here talking to the baron you make the persuasion check you know like you you can't wait for the face to drift over and use his expertise and persuasion you're going to have to make a go of it yourself, Cleric. Yeah. No, let me just get uh, my friend over here to talk to you. What are you... That's insane. Yeah, what? You're here. Talk to me. Right. Yeah. No, you can't do that. <laughs> He's extremely offended 
He doesn't like your friend now either. <laughs> this is highly irregular, sir. This is not how we conduct ourselves in the proud town of Brazendell. Right. <laughs> proud ish town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we discussed a lot of these potential options in the alternative combat objectives episode. It's just that in this case, those alternative objectives don't necessarily happen in the same room at the same time. You know, they could be in totally separate locations. Yeah, and if you're going to introduce combat in this way, keep in mind some players see combat as a reward, right? Combat <laughs> is the fun part of the game, so you don't want to deny players the opportunity to get involved in a fight. Sometimes you want to throw two smaller fights at, at both groups. Yeah, this sort of leads us into how do you go about making this happen at a table? And, you know, it, it speaks to one of the first issues is that you really want to avoid split screens that happen on different time scales. You know, you don't want one group in combat while the other group is doing research because, you know, the combat is going to take all of in-game time, like less than a minute. Right. Whereas those research checks are like an hour a piece, yeah. you know, so you don't want to have to do the entire combat while the uh, other party is basically sit around, sitting around doing nothing. Yeah, or you have to do that kind of flashback, flash forward move, mm -hmm. you know, where it's like, okay, so we're skipping through the six hours the party spent traipsing out to the middle of the woods for this combat. Right. We're going to flash back now to when the research started. But even so, a lot of times it's a lot less satisfying to be on the I make a skill check side of this. Yeah, it can take a bit of finessing to keep everyone sort of on the same general kind of time scale but yeah. we'll get to that in a sec it's especially difficult when one party like one subset of your party initiates combat yeah because you're like oh great you're going to the library you're going to talk to the queen perfect you know it'll be social checks on both sides yeah. i attack the queen wait uh, what <laughs> <laughs> so if one side does go into a battle and you can't help it you can pause it while the other party continues but you know, maybe move them along a little more quickly, right? So, okay, great. They're attacking the queen. You guys are researching in the library. Well, you do your one round of combat. We come back over to the research. Let's do four hours of research, you know, and just sort of push them through that narratively because there's no point in talking through all of those skill checks in great detail when you've got this other group waiting over here. Get them to either maybe their next combat or their discovery, something that they can actually do in a smaller time frame so that you've got both sides on the same time scale again. Yeah. This is super nice if you can get them to their discovery and then get them to go follow up on that other group. Yeah. <laughs> so so they become the reinforcements. <laughs> or as soon as they make the discovery, well, now you're attacked. Right. <laughs> Look, I needed a combat, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and this brings us to split screen combat in general. You know, for whatever reason, you've got both groups or multiple groups in combat at the same time. Now, combat is usually the part of the game that bogs down. You know, it, it takes longer to actually move anything forward because only one person is doing a thing at a time. And if everyone is in a separate freaking group, then that has the potential to multiply even more. So there are quite a few tricks that you can keep in mind to make it run more smoothly. And it doesn't need to be a ton more work than a normal battle. If you think about it, Putting a combat in two separate places is literally as simple as just putting a second map and second group of minis on the table. Your mini is just interacting with only part of the scenario instead of the whole thing. It's Sometimes it can even be faster because you have less tactical things to worry about. Yeah, exactly. You know, person number two is not affecting person number five. 
So there's a couple scenarios. You, you could have your groups enter initiative at the same time. You know, it's okay, you're in a combat, you're in a combat too, everybody roll initiative, and we're actually going to run through the normal initiative order. Right. Yeah, it doesn't matter that one group is going on 19, 18, 12, and 6, and the other group is going on 21, 14, 9, and 11. Right. That's not an order, but whatever. Whatever. <laughs> like, it, it doesn't make a difference. You just run through the numerical order, and everyone gets a turn each round. Right. You could also even have each player in a totally separate location. Rounds still happen in the same order. This is sort of the same scenario if the players are actually in the same location, but they can't affect each other. I've uh, seen, for example, like in arena combat, where the arena is divided by clear partitions, like basically transparent walls. So everyone can see what everyone else is doing, can see that everyone sort of has their own giant monster to contend with, but they can't do anything to help each other. They can communicate and they can plan their tactics based on how their friends are doing, but they can't actively aid in any way. Yeah. So you just move through regular initiative order. You switch to whatever battle is being affected by those particular actions. And it's really awesome if you can make a scenario where the actions in one battle affect the battlefield of the other one. I like the idea of like trapped in sort of a an out of phase dimension kind of thing like like an ethereal realm or something like that where you can have just the slightest effects on each other's battles but you can't directly <laughs> interact right like your spells can't cross over but maybe the the effects that you leave on the terrain from casting spells uh, have some sort of echo effect have like an yeah. echo in the real world or or vice versa right so the difficult terrain that you're creating is difficult in both places even though the damage and the direct effects aren't felt. Yeah, that's super interesting. The fireball in one area doesn't burn the other, but it does sort of like char the terrain. Right, right. Yeah. The other thing you could do is, let, let's say the PCs are all in the same castle, or maybe all in the same airship, but they're in totally separate locations. And if one group is fighting in the control room and the other is in the engine room, then that fireball that knocks out the engines affects everybody everybody yeah but they don't necessarily know what's going on or if someone gets knocked into the control stick and now we're in a free fall dive right yeah we're all a, dealing yeah with the it's with everyone's the problem terrain. yep <laughs> in the same way that it can be a problem if one group initiates combat and the other isn't in it you will have the same issue if one group finishes combat first which is almost always going to happen so you can speed up the slower combat you're in control of how many hit points the bad guys have you know, so if one group ends, you could just say, oh, okay, well, the enemies that the other group is facing, they'll probably get routed soon, or like I'll just penalize them some hit points. That's kind of a metagamey way to do it. Yeah, we ran into this in our Dark Heresy game, our original Dark Heresy game. The scenario was we were going into a negotiation, I think, with a, like a black market arms dealer, and part of the party was split outside taking out his guards yeah we were like a sniper team mm -hmm. <laughs> and the other half was actually walking into his warehouse to have that negotiation to parlay with no weapons right so we were trying to take out his guards without him knowing it as we had the conversation mm -hmm. so that we could then bust in weapons hot <laughs> and take him <laughs> out he was probably a heretic <laughs> yeah probably and yeah. he had an awesome gun right so. <laughs> so it was that element of each round the the face party that was inside the warehouse had to sort of delay and, and make their way meandering through this conversation yeah. to allow the sniper team to get into position to take down each target in between. And so they were making checks to kind of 
make small talk. You know? Yeah, like, they almost had to be bad at the conversation. Right, yeah. But then make sure that he didn't like go check his walkie-talkie. Right, had to keep him distracted so that he didn't get like a, a warning and nobody missed a check and like all those types of things. Right, so. and we were burning all our fade points on not missing. Not missing, yeah, because we didn't want an alert of attackers right. outside. Like, it would, yeah, yeah, they need to die. Right, right. they can't. They, they can't with their dying breath like get to the radio. Right, because I think when, when I say sniper team, it was a spotter and a sniper, and then. I think my character was just running around to coup de gras. Anybody who survived, right. it was like, <laughs> just in oh, case. Oh, I got shot in the head. All right, cool. Now my head's off. <laughs> if you do get into the situation, you can run one round for the team that is still in combat, and then you switch to the other side. They're not in combat, but you just sort of run through the aftermath. They do some searches to check the bodies, or they like quickly secure the area, and do that for like. 60 seconds of in-game time which will probably take about as long to narrate or determine as a combat round would right and and the trick there is that at the end of it you don't do a firm accounting of time yeah right? oh yeah it's, it's just like <laughs> oh cool so like we're we're roughly at the same place now in we, our in our we, narrative we rendezvous it took them longer to walk there yeah exactly <laughs> oh they had to you know like clean off their armor and stuff obviously <laughs> this timeline wonkiness is exacerbated when you're dealing with split-screen exploration, you know, because the timelines are much larger. One group is searching the woods and the other group is searching a library. Or two people are searching woods in separate areas and, you know, one actually has something that they could possibly find and the other doesn't. Yeah, I think in this case, the best thing is rather than focusing on a timeline like you do in combat, focus on dramatic events, Mm -hmm. right? So what's the most dramatic time to pause this conversation to go somewhere else yeah i would loosely track the separate timelines so you have an idea of like who is where when but yeah definitely don't pause both sides as soon as one team runs into something you know like one team runs into something and then you like buzz the timeline on the other and say okay after an hour you stumble upon a shack in the woods you guys nothing happens for about six hours and then you see a light in the distance right but then run both of those scenarios and just you know keep in mind that one is sort of more advanced on the timeline and again you sort it all out at the end with cool and now we're back together at the same time don't ask questions (laughs) what took you guys so long yeah (laughs) so this could be a good way to do side quests as well yeah a little bit like um anime filler i know you don't know anything about nerd that means nothing to me They don't necessarily advance the overall plot, but they can add side information that might be important to advancing the plot. Or, like we said before, can just really help an individual character round out or complete one of their arcs. But because they only involve one or maybe a couple PCs, you really like rarely want to do them actually at the table because other people will just get bored. This is good if you otherwise don't have enough players to have a normal session, right? It's like, cool, let's let's run like kind of a side plot for whoever is here. Or if um, if you've maybe got one player who's missed a lot of sessions mm-hmm. and you need to explain, well, okay, so we could say that you've just been here in the background and haven't been involved, but let's maybe say that you've been elsewhere, actually, and let's go kind of figure out what that was. Yeah, what did you do on your own? Right. That's always nice. I think for most groups, you tend to have a quorum number. You know, we need three people or we need four people minimum in order to actually play. And if like that many people can't make it, we cancel the entire session. So I really like to have a few scenarios in my back pocket generally sketched out that could apply to 
you know, one particular or several different characters so that if we do get in that situation, I can still say, actually, don't worry about it. I've got a side quest that we can run that involves the three of you. Right. And keep in mind, when you do side quests, they don't have to be in the current continuity, right? They can be flashbacks. They can even be flash forwards. Mm -hmm. They kind of establish something about the character or about the NPCs that they're currently interacting with. Dream sequences are also really good too because then you can hand wave stuff like exactly what gear I had on my person at yeah. the time. Yeah. So I had one of these situations for one of my characters in a in a game I had missed like a month and the DM Typical was like Shane. Yeah, I know. I'm awful. <laughs> but the DM was like, "So, we've kind of written your character a little bit out of of where the rest of them are. I've got an idea to how to tie you back in." Uh Here's the situation, right? And I was basically like a half-orc barbarian, and I had to defend an, an elf settlement from an, an attack, basically. And so I was fending off like a werebore, I think, was like the main thing. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was great. It was amazing. I was like, and it became sort of my character's like claim to fame, right? As I defended, this is in Greyhawk. So it was the Dreadwood. Oh. Uh, I was defending the Dreadwalkers. Because they were something, something had affected them. They, I think, they had some reason they were extremely weakened, and so like I was the one standing at the gates, like beating my chest and challenging yeah. all comers. <laughs> it's for Deus Ex Machina reason. Yeah, whatever. It didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I became Thrusk, the one man army. <laughs> it's like now my an my, army of Thrusk. The army of Thrusk. Yes. <laughs> Where uh, in the timeline did this happen? Was it just your character? You'd been gone for a month. So your character in the meantime, this is what he had been doing? Well, so we had crossed paths with mm -hmm. the Dreadwalkers when I was with the group. And then the group had moved on to actually a different region. Mm -hmm. um, they had just kind of gone on following what they were doing. And the DM wasn't sure if I was actually coming back to the group because it was an online game. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where players kind of drop out without right. announcing it. And, uh, and I had intended to come back. So he had this idea that I had stayed behind with the Dreadwalkers for whatever reason and then had a way to kind of catch me back up with the party. But it was it was a lot of fun because then as I arrived back with the party, they're like, oh, yeah, we've heard about you. <laughs> people talk. Not always nice things. Yeah, like people are like buying me drinks when I walk into taverns now. <laughs> I'm like very confused about this. Yeah, it's a wonderful age that we live in because – Many of these side sessions can happen online or just via email. Yeah. You're not taking time away from anyone else at the table. I think often it kind of scratches an itch for a GM to like create something slightly different and also that isn't an entire session. Yeah. And you can do this really cool in-depth character development yeah. when you're kind of a, a smaller table, not sharing the spotlight as much. Yeah, we did a little bit of that in morning glory with brand going on his trips that we've talked about before where he'd teleport away into flame keep and then foment rebellion yeah <laughs> but angelo also did it in our our 4e game uh, he and i would have uh, a lot of conversations over email about like what my character was doing actually he also had access to teleport so oh, yeah that's handy <laughs> yeah <it's> super handy <laughs> so what happens if you fail in a side quest or you fail when the party is split like like you die. Yeah. <laughs> uh, them's the breaks. You yeah. split the party. <laughs> right. That's <laughs> sort of the classical answer. 
And I think that should always be an option on the table, right? You don't want your party thinking, oh, I mean, we split the party, but like, we're not, we're not going to die. That doesn't happen in this game. Yeah, yeah. But you do, as a, as a GM, you do want to be careful of just the chilling effect that mm-hmm. your, your group will never split the party again if they just get wrecked when they do it. Yeah. So in that regard, I think it's always cool if you can introduce an element that's not too ham-fisted of a last-minute rescue. Right. Yeah, like we talked about, people on different timelines, if the other group that's still fighting, well, the first group might be able to rendezvous with them and like sweep in at the last moment and like help them finish it off. Yeah, so you can kind of do that dramatic pause of, oh, this is looking very bad for your group. Let's go see what the other group is doing. Yeah. Right? And, then, and then you advance them through their fight and into their rescue. Right. Uh, everything's very quiet, but... You haven't heard anything from the other group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did this in our Road Trader game where we were fighting the Chaos Space Marines and Angela's character and Steph's character were still on the ship. And so we were fighting the Marines and then they were like running as quickly as they could through the demon haunted void ship to get to the chapel where we were. Uh, well, actually to get to a control panel. Oh, right. To, <laughs> you were going to space the space We were going to space the space marines, yeah. <laughs> it's just, all right, cool, we'll just decompress the chapel. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> hey, you know, either we were going to die with them or our party was going to make it and save our asses. I'm actually really surprised that the latter happened. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was good timing. It, it worked out, the dice played well with the narrative but i think it would have been a good outcome either way it would have been a f- it would have been a good outcome if you guys died you know it would no it would have been a really amusing way to die because you wouldn't have all died right only Just a couple thing. of you would have actually died in i it. mean it is 40k so yeah it is kind of hilarious if a few people die yeah and you killed some chaos space marines so uh, right uh, i will say um of course the dice went that way and made narrative sense because it was steph rolling them oh right and she only <laughs> rolls well in clutch situations exactly it was literally the last die roll of the last round where we could have survived, and she had failed up until that point. Yeah, all you have to do is say, all right, this is the last round. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't do well, we lose. Right. Nat 20s all the there way. There they go. Yeah. <laughs> it's a perfect one. <laughs> you can also pull your punches a bit. We've certainly talked about before. Maybe they don't die. You know, maybe the rogue who is off on their own gets captured and maybe just ransom back to the party. Yeah. Or, you know, they're thrown in jail, which is an excellent time for a jailbreak arc. Yep. And jailbreak is a perfect split scenario because you can have people working on both sides, mm-hmm. right? You're doing the same setup activity. Uh, the key is you got to find a way for them to communicate to each other so they can coordinate. But Or don't. <laughs> just leave it to chance. <laughs> But you, uh, you know, you've got the non-captured group is trying to figure out what the perimeter of the defenses look like, and then you've got the group inside working to free themselves so that they're ready when the rescue comes. Yeah, this is a situation where I might actually encourage the party to split into multiple small groups. So one person in jail, one person infiltrates as a guard or a visitor, yep. and then other people still on the outside. Maybe one on the roof, one like trying to infiltrate through the basement. Well, the classical form would be to actually infiltrate as a prisoner. And bring supplies in. <laughs> so two people in jail, one is a guard. Where did you store those thieves' tools? Right. D- don't ask. Yeah. We don't have bags of holding yet. Right. This is also an opportunity to introduce alternate characters mm-hmm. or to actually just switch characters, right? If if a character dies, you can... Sometimes players are done with that character. But uh, this is a good chance to, like, while the party is split, 
you know, an NPC kind of gets promoted to PC status temporarily. Yeah. We talked in the completing character arcs episode that sometimes the end of a character's arc is that they die. For a good or really dumb reason. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, you know, maybe investigating the fate of their parents, like, the rogue dies. And mm-hmm. like that's that's an ending that may be really satisfying for that player. Yeah, it's a little dark. Yeah. But the legacy of that character, then, is is the lessons that his party learns mm-hmm. from his death. Right? Yeah, and then how do they memorialize? Do they then take up that quest? Right. Yeah. Is it is it, we have to bring Rosalda's honor home? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like her sword must be returned to her parents. Yeah, I think the key here is that whatever you do, whatever happens, those consequences should affect the entire group. So if the rogue does die, find some way to have the party discover those remains or, you know, her journal or something. Mm. Or let that mystery be a nagging Mm, factor mm -hmm. for the party. Right. You don't want those consequences to just fall on the PCs in the group that failed. Right. Or alternatively, you don't want the consequences of one group failing to only fall on the other group. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> oh, you failed to convince them, so now they're trapped inside the vault. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where they're going to die All in eight suffocate. hours without air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turns out, killing half of you kills all of you. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's that Ocean's Eleven problem, right? <laughs> right. Like, one guy fails, he gets kicked out of the casino. It's the other three guys that die. <laughs> All right, do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, That's definitely the sound of me actually rolling well because I have to. Then we should uh, roll up Character Creation Forge characters while we have the chance. Good idea. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us, if you can't fit it into 140 characters, at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at TotalPartyThrill. So, this week, in the Character Creation Forge, we have built the Beguiler, Ishan what is a beguiler it was a pretty popular 3.5 class that melded intelligence-based spontaneous arcane casting with rogue skills so you basically had a sneaky caster who was really good at lying and casting enchantment spells so like if the the lie didn't work they just charmed you literally charm person they specialized in those enchantment and the non-offensive spells but they kind of had a bad really small spell list so they ended up kind of relegated to melee combat far more often than should have been necessary for a ninth level caster yeah so (laughs) as often is the case when we find underpowered concepts Mm. we're trying to recreate the feel of this class more than the mechanics yeah we don't want to restrict this character to like non-offensive spells right (laughs) (laughs) we're not trying to make you awful right let's build a 3.5 bard (laughs) right (laughs) so we could have gone in a direction where you basically have a powerful enchanter. You know, like 5th edition lets you build a high-level character that can cast a twinned, uncounterable power word kill that has no save and immediately like murders two people. Mm-hmm. But that's not really what the Beguiler does. It doesn't really fit with the way that they played in earlier editions. We're really looking for someone who is comfortable in melee combat, but can fall back on, or even as, as a first resort, use those 
enchantment or deceptive skills and spells to give themselves an edge in combat. Okay, so what's the build? It's kind of weird. It is Bladesinger 15, Rogue 1, Warlock 1, Sorcerer 3. So I get Sorcerer. That's giving you spontaneous casting, and it's uh, it's giving you a subtle spell, I presume. Yeah, exactly. The Beguiler was known for being able to cast spells without anyone knowing that they were doing that. So three levels of Sorcerer does let you cast subtle spell three times per day, which is nice. And then Rogue, of course, that's the traditional base of the Beguiler, but you're looking for persuasion and deception expertise, right? Yeah, exactly. Bladesinger, get it. That's a wizard. Mm-hmm. Intelligence-based melee. Melee wizard. Mm-hmm. What is Warlock doing in here? <laughs> We've talked a bit before about the Smite Cycle, which is a Paladin Warlock, because Warlocks refresh their spell slots on a short rest, so then the Paladin can feed those into their Smites. The Sorcerer can do the same thing, because they can eat spell slots to get new sorcery points. So every short rest, you're going to get a first-level Warlock spell that you can then burn for a sorcery point that you can then use to charge Subtle Spell. So... Pretty constantly, you can make sure that you are, almost any time you're casting a spell, no one knows that you're doing it. And in 5th edition, if someone can't see you cast a spell, they can't counter it. That seems like a really, really long way to go for one little trick. <laughs> I gotta be honest. Hey, it's only one level of Warlock. Right. <laughs> uh, interesting. Interesting. And with 15 levels of Bladesinger, you do get 8th level spells, all the way up to a nice capstone feature for the Beguiler, which is Dominate Monster. Yeah, that's one of the classic saver suck spells. Yeah. You can also, for a more defensive, skills-focused build, you could go with Mind Blank, which just means that no one's going to be able to tell that you're lying. Right. <laughs> one option is you could reduce Bladesinger some for a little more Warlock. That gives you a more reliable refresh for those slots that you can use for Subtle Spell. Plus, you know, you'll get some neat invocations. You'd be a little more melee-focused, though, because you wouldn't necessarily have 8th-level spells. But, I mean, if you get to 5th or 6th, you're still going to be pretty, like, melee-focused caster. Yeah, you're going to have all the highlight reel of the enchantment. Yeah, exactly. Tree. So, tell me about your Beguiler. Where does she come from? Where does she go? (laughs) She's never been to a hoedown, so, sorry. I I mean, she could probably convince me she has. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing. She's most focused on tricking the devil himself okay her patron in fact is a fiend yes exactly fiend packed warlock doesn't affect her much but she's taken it early on to get out of difficult circumstances and now she wants out ah okay but (laughs) he's got his claws dug in deep you know i know that you have potential here i can see it You're casting spells. You're an amazing liar. You are a perfect pawn. You're not going anywhere. And so the entire reason that she becomes a masterful liar, a paragon of deceit, is so that someday when she faces him in person, she can look him right in the eye and say, I am loyal. And he will believe her and she can stab him in the face. Interesting. Interesting. I like that idea. I like any any warlock who's trying to get one over on their patron. Right. I love. <laughs> I can tell that you're loyal. Yes. Dominate monster. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Shane. What is your beguiler? Well, like I just said, I like any warlock who's trying to get one over on their patron. <laughs> but in this case, I, I would continue down the warlock flavor. So mm. I would go for a fey warlock. And uh, this is somebody who has 
so devoted themselves to their patron that rather than siphoning more and more power from it, they've decided, I'm going to try and impress my patron. Oh. So I will I will pursue this path of enchantment, of trickery, of charming, without greater investiture of my patron's power. Oh, I've earned it on my own. Exactly. Oh. So that maybe, uh, I don't know what the end game is here, so I'm not super into Faye, if I'm being honest, but you know... <laughs> The, any end game could really work, you know. Like maybe he, he, my, my patron can turn me into a fae. I think it might be very Celtic if they want to um, marry their patron. Oh yeah, that's a classic one that mm-hmm. I never think of because mm-hmm. I'm not a teenage girl. In your heart, you're a teenage boy. Uh, teenage not... dirtbag, baby. <laughs> I'm just a teenage <laughs> dirtbag, baby. That's the cold open. <laughs> Please no. <laughs> We'll just play Iron Maiden. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we've gotten into Weedus, it is time to move on. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're willing to help us out, we will read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And we do have a new review today. This is New to RPGs, Great Intro, Five Stars by... J-D-U-B-R-X. I think that's J-Dub-R-X. J-Dub prescription? Yeah. So J-W, probably a pharmacist. Quote-unquote pharmacist. Mm -hmm. I like it. I've always wanted to play RPGs but never got the chance. Now with some buddies we started playing, and one of them recommended TPT to me, since we'll be starting a campaign set in Eberron. This podcast gives me a lot of ideas about how to make an effective character and handle myself at the table. While some of it is a bit over my head, I know that this will serve as a resource I can go back to as I level up as a player. Thanks for all the work. And thanks for writing in, JDubRx. This really warms my heart because this is exactly what I wanted when we set out to create TPT Mm -hmm. was the idea that it would work for new players, but it would also be valuable to older GMs and DMs and, and older players as well who have more experience. The idea that he can come back and, and things will make more sense later. I love that. That means that we've kind of hit that sweet spot. So, Yeah, when you're an old cranky grognard, we hope this is still useful. Right, yeah. <laughs> In my day, we played 5th edition. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about scale in RPGs. And in the character creation forge? We're building the Storm Surge. Well, that's it for episode 67 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.